Well, good morning. My name is Sean. I'm the pastor here at Grace. I'm glad that you guys are here. Um, we are in our third week, uh, third and final week of this series, 21 Days. Somebody asked me, does it end today? And no, no. It started two weeks ago, uh, the, the 21 Days of Fasting, and it would end at the end of, of this next week. I was on vacation uh, for the last two weeks, so I picked a really wrong time to go into a series on fasting when I went on vacation. So I didn't go too hard on myself. The first week for me was was uh, no soda, and the second week was uh, only eat between 11 to 7, and so, but, but still with the no soda, so this next week, each week I'm going to try to like step up my, my game a little bit. Pastor Kent, or excuse me, Pastor Taylor uh, spoke last week and did a stinking phenomenal job, didn't he do good? That was great. He did a really, really good job. Um, that went online like at 10.30 on Monday. I called him at 11.15, and I was like, dude! He goes, what? I was like, dude, you tore it up. That was legit. And he goes, did you even listen to it? I was like, nah. No, I did. It was, it was great. I said, I'm going to put you in the regular rotation. He goes, no, 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 no. He goes, I didn't sleep at all. I was like, dude, if you don't want to speak more, then you should have sucked. <laughs> Bro, it is your fault. <laughs> like, like, you can't ask me not to have you speak more often if you're going to do a good job. He did a, he did a really, really good job uh, last weekend, so I, I appreciated him doing that. But uh, a couple of things that we talked, we started in the first week of our 21 days of prayer and fasting, talking about fasting, knowing that I'd be gone for the next two weeks, and knowing that most people have more confusion over fasting than praying, we wanted to talk about the purpose of fasting. What we said was that we spend our lives hanging on to everything this world tells us is most important. And on the weekends when we come to church or any time that we pray, what we do is we take one hand off of everything we're distracted by and we grab hold of God. That's what prayer is. Prayer is grabbing hold of God. It's, it's letting go of everything that we're distracted from. It's grabbing, grabbing hold of God. And fasting, we said, was letting go of the world. That's what it is. So prayer is grabbing hold of God. Fasting is letting go of the world. It's, it's me consciously recognizing that I don't need soda like I need God. I don't need food like I need God. I don't, like, I know there's some people who are, are fasting from uh, social media or they're fasting from, like, I don't know that it matters what you fast from. Paul says that I discipline my body physically so that I don't disqualify myself spiritually. There's a direct connection between our ability to discipline ourselves physically and our ability to be spiritually disciplined. And I believe that this has to do, that connection is in our willpower. Because when I tell myself no physically to something, that isn't necessarily a bad thing, just something that I crave, like soda. For some of you, like coffee. For some of you, like cigarettes. For some of you, like you know, social media. When I say no to something that I normally gravitate to, I'm exercising my willpower muscles. I like everything in me wants this, but I'm telling myself no. That's like lifting mental weights, right? I'm exercising my ability to exer- to, to, for my will to control my life. So that spiritually, when I'm tempted and everything in me craves sin, I've already built up the willpower muscles to sell my, tell myself no to things that formerly used to control me and my heart also. Like a, that rage monster, or maybe you've got a lust monster in your heart, or a greed monster, whatever it is. It controls your life because you are incapable of saying no to your cravings because you have not disciplined yourself physically. So that, that's the connection. I love the way that Taylor finished the teaching last weekend uh, with that line. He said, prayer should be our first response not our last resort. Wasn't that good? I thought that was great. And then he used the, uh, uh, um, the Our Father prayer as a model prayer for us. And he showed us how Jesus never intended it to be a prayer that we memorized and quoted back to him. The Jews had all kinds of memorized prayers. And so the disciples being raised in Jewish homes had memorized prayers. But they saw Jesus praying off script. And that's what caught their attention, Taylor showed us from Scripture. They're like, teach us to pray like that. I want to pray from my heart. How do I pray from my heart and not pray from my memory? And Jesus said, if you're going to pray from your heart, you should pray like this. He didn't say you should pray this. He said you should pray like this. Recognize that God is good. Recognize that. 
Recognize that God is the source of your daily bread. Recognize your dependence on God. Ask God for forgiveness, but recognize your responsibility now to forgive others, right? He says, and, and, but always pray for God's will to be done on earth like God's will is done already in heaven. And we talked about why that was so important. So last week and then the week before, there was a little video uh, tips that we put, like a little video encouragement. Like, I think it was like less than a minute each uh, last two Mondays on, on our church's Facebook page. And I ended, at, I think the first week I gave you three tips on prayer and fasting. The second week was two tips on prayer and fasting. And the second, the last tip on both of those weeks were, were this. Make sure that you finish your prayer by praying that what you want, more than what you want, is what God wants for your life. That's important. Because it reminds me that God doesn't owe me anything. In fact, what God does owe me, I don't want. Because I know that I'm guilty before God. I know that I've broken his laws. And as somebody who has broken God's laws, and God as a holy and righteous judge, if he's going to give me what I deserve, bro, I don't want that. The truth is, I already have more than what I deserve. Right? So that moves me towards gratitude. We're going to talk about that in a little bit also. I wanted to wrap up the series, though, today, Talking about your perspective of prayer, it's my opinion that most people here at Grace Church feel like other people's prayers are better than their prayers. We think that our prayers don't work. Who are we that God should listen to us? And and I get that if that comes from a, a place of humility, but if that moves you to pray less, then that's coming from the wrong place. And I feel like people have this impression because of things that are said back in the Connection Center. At the end of every service, me and some of the other pastors, some of the other leaders in our church, both men and women, go to the Connection Center. Anybody who wants anybody to pray with them can come in there for prayer. And sometimes people will come in and somebody from our leadership team will offer to pray with them. And they go, no, no, no. I'm going to wait on Pastor Sean to pray with me. Because in their mind, Sean prayers are better than the other person's prayers. But you only think that because you don't know me. (laughs) Like, my wife was like, what? People like, really think that? I'm like, apparently. I said, chick, you should be lucky. She goes, please. (laughs) My prayers don't have any more magic Jesus sauce on them than anybody else's prayers do. Right, But I don't know that people are convinced of that. We're not convinced that when we pray, God hears us. Or sometimes we pray like God's on the up opposite team and we're trying to, like, Red Rover, Red Rover, send Jesus right over. Right? Like, I, want, like, I have to talk God into, like, wanting to help me. Right? Please, 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 please. We beg God to act as though he likes us, almost from the assumption that he probably doesn't. And I think that that kills your prayer life. I think that it sabotages your ability to have a healthy relationship with God. So that's what I want to talk about today. Imagine what your life would be like if, if, imagine, what if you were 100% confident that your prayers to God were just as good as Mother Teresa's prayers to God? Blasphemy! What if your prayers, like when Billy Graham bows his head and prays over his open Bible that he's been reading all night long probably, right? What if your prayers were just as good as his prayers? So I, I threw in a Catholic, I threw in a Protestant, so we got all bases covered, right? Throw in your grandma, whatever she was, but she's probably super religious too. But what if your prayers were just, and see, you don't think they are. Like, you, you think this is like a ridiculous scenario, but what if I could show you from the scriptures that your prayers were just as authoritative in the presence of God as Mother Teresa's or Billy Graham's? What if? What if you were just convinced? What if just in your own head you thought that was true? Would you pray more or less? How would it change the way you'd pray? You'd pray over more important things probably. What if you were 100% convinced 
that every time you bowed your head, unless you're in the car, then you can pray with your eyes open. Like I was, I don't know why we always have to bow our head and close our eyes when we pray. Because then I feel like if my eyes are open, like am I cheating in my prayer? Does my prayer is like half as, you know, like there's like, Jesus is like, I'm sorry, 50% off that prayer, one eye was open. I'm sorry, I'm not really going to, you have to pray twice now if you're lying, to equal one prayer with your eyes closed. That's not even in the Bible. You're allowed to pray with your, your eyes. But what if every time you said, dear God, God went, whoa, 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 shh, to everybody else. What if you were 100, what if you were 100% confident that your prayers mattered to God as much or even more than they mattered to you when you prayed them? How would that change your life spiritually? Somehow we've been taught that we need other people to pray for us or we need a saint to pray for us or we'll pray to Mary to pray to Jesus or we'll pray to Jude or to to insert favorite patron saint here or dead religious relative here. Grandma, please go tell Jesus this, right? What if we didn't need to do that? I want to do two things with the remaining time that we have. The first is this. I want you to know that God doesn't want you to depend on praying to anybody else to pray to him for you. That does not mean that you can't get other people to pray with you for you. But I'm talking about that idea of I need them. If they don't pray for me, I have to have them pray for me because my prayers don't work. That's the first thing. I want you to get past that. The second thing, I want you to be 100% convinced from the scripture that when you pray, God listens. Your prayers work and your prayers matter. That's what I want you to be convinced of before we leave. My grandmother died when I was uh, six, uh, but we lived in the same town as her for uh, three more years after that. So I I missed my grandma, but like we'd go over to their house still on Sunday afternoons for dinner, even after she had passed. And so there was that connection to my dad's side of the family that was able to be maintained as long as we lived in Detroit. That's where, that's where she was from. She was from Dearborn. And, um, uh, but then when I was nine, we moved, uh, we, moved, we moved out of state. And I was in the back window sleeping. It was at nighttime in the back window of my dad's LTD. Does anybody remember... LTDs. Google Ford LTD. I don't think that car would fit on this stage. It's a giant, it was green with green fuzz interior. I was, it's, it, wasn't, it wasn't velvet. I don't, it was like that crushed like, I don't know what that was. But God help if you got something stuck on it, it wasn't ever coming off. Right? And in those days, they hadn't invented safety yet. I don't think that existed. So like uh, there were three kids in the family, so when we were making a long drive, if you were the good kid, you got to sleep on the bench seat. If you were like, you know, you're a little bit of a problem today, you weren't as good as your sister, you got the back window, right? Anybody remember sleeping in a window in a car? And if you were like the kid that just complained, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are you? you got the hump on the floor. You had to sleep on the hump. Anybody ever slept on the hump on the floor? Anybody? Okay, that's... <laughs> it gets so hot down there. I hate it. They didn't have... They had seat belts, just nobody knew how they worked, I think is how that worked. But, so I'm in the back window, which tells you I wasn't the best kid that day, but I wasn't the worst kid that day. And so I'm looking at the stars, I'm sleeping, I'm nine years old, and I started crying. Everybody else is asleep in the car. My dad's driving, he said, buddy, what's the matter? And I was crying, I said, I miss grandmama. I was just looking up at the stars, and I'm like, do you think she can see us? And my dad's like, ah, I don't know, bud. But why don't you do this? Why don't you pray and ask Jesus to tell her you miss her and you love her? So I did. Nine-year-old me in the back window that LTD, I was praying to Jesus about missing my grandmother. And I think that was a brilliant spiritual move on my dad's part because he taught me a couple of things. Number one is he taught me not to pray to dead people. Right? taught me not to pray to dead people. And the second thing he taught me to do is he taught me where to go when my heart was hurting. You go to God with that, right? He didn't make up answers for things he didn't know the answers to. So I don't know, bud. But why don't... Now, did Jesus go tell my grandmother that? I, I, I don't know. I really don't know. 
But I know that a lot of us are under the impression, and so listen, I'm, I'm going to say a couple of things from Scripture today that might be offensive, and you can do with it whatever you want. You can walk out and pray however you want when you walk out and pray. But if there is a God, and He's given us instructions on how to pray, and you've learned these instructions, and you don't do anything with it, then that's on you, right? So I just want you to know that my goal is not to offend anybody. But I've got a friend who had a loved one pass recently on Facebook. They took a picture of their loved one's favorite wild animal pet, not like wild animal tiger, but like wild animal in the woods. And when they went to the graveside ceremony uh, after the funeral, uh, you know, where they lay the flowers on the casket and the, the priest or minister says a, a few last words, and then uh, they close in prayer. They read a Psalm 23 or something like that. Um, they saw their dead relative's favorite animal in the cemetery, and they took a picture of the animal and posted it on Facebook and said, we know that he was there with us. Is that true? Like, there are things that you hear said at funerals, and you're like, really? Like, what is said that's true, and what is said just to make people feel better about their loss? Well, here's what I know from Scripture. If you've got your Bible, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6 through 8. It says this, So we are always confident, even though we know that as long as we live in these bodies, we are not at home with the Lord. So he says, as long as I, the person that I am, the intangible me, right? Not the physical part that you can see, but like you can't open up anywhere and say that's where Sean is. I am in here, but where exactly, I don't know. Like you can't touch that, right? Like the me, my soul, who I actually am, the part of me created in the image of God, right? As long as I am in this body, I am not physically in the presence of God in heaven. That's all Paul's saying. As long as I'm here, I'm not there. All right, keep reading. For we live by believing and not by seeing. Verse 8, yes, we are fully confident and we would rather be away from this body because when we are away from this body, then we are at home with the Lord. So you've got two choices. If, if you are in this body, you are not in the presence of God. And if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've turned from sin, he's writing to a Christian church, those who are followers of God. If you've turned from the sin that separates you from God, that's our disobedience to his commandments and our selfishness towards our fellow man. And everybody here has disobeyed God's moral law and we've all been selfish towards other people. So everybody here is equally guilty, all right? So there's no finger pointing. But if we've turned away from that, accepted Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is the only thing God will accept on our behalf on Judgment Day as payment for that debt, We've been made a part of God's family. If that's you, if you have turned from your sin to begin following Jesus, then when you leave this body, Paul says, you are physically, you are who you are. You are in the presence of God. You're not there anymore. So you're either in this body, or if you were in relationship with God, you enter eternity the exact same way in relationship with God, and now you're in his presence. But... If you live this life disconnected from God, then when you die, you enter eternity the exact same way. And that's just rational, disconnected from God. And while it's not PC to talk about, when you die, when this body dies, who you are is either in the presence of God or in hell. That's it. There's no wandering around. That's not what the scriptures teach. You leave this body. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're in the presence of God. If you're not, you're not. That's what the scriptures teach. So then we are then taught, listen, I, I, I know I can't pray. She's not here any longer. And I would say, what do I do with that favorite animal that came into the cemetery? If that was an encouragement to you from God, then I would say that that was an encouragement to you from God that wasn't your dead loved one possessing that cardinal, pigeon, whatever it was. So if God encouraged you on the day of your loved one's passing or funeral, then accept that as a blessing from God. Does that make sense? So some of us will also um, pray 
um, not just to relatives or try to talk to them on the other side of the grave, but some of us will also talk to other saints. We've been taught to pray to St. Peter. We've been taught to pray to Mary, and not all of us have, but a lot of us have. Over half of those at Grace Church are Catholics, and we're an interdenominational church. I have a religious background. You have a religious background, and I don't care what you call yourself. We just want to turn from our separation from God to follow Jesus and help people. We're going to live our lives based on this book, right? So I've, I've got Catholic friends that have been taught their whole life to pray, and Orthodox friends. Right? We, we pray, to, pray to Mary. Why, why, why do we pray to Mary? Because, because Jesus can't refuse her is the answer that I've been given. Now, that sounds pretty manipulative to me. If you know Jesus is going to say no to you, wouldn't Mary say no to? It's not like Mary's going to be up, like if Mary could do this, she's going to go, you know what, Jesus already said no to this, but he's kind of a jerk. I'm on your team. So I'll tell you what, now, I, I, and, I'm, and I don't mean to be disrespectful, but think through this for a moment. If God wouldn't give you what you're asking for, do you think Mary would ask for it also? That is manipulative. If you're the type of child who always went to your parents' favorite child and got them to ask your parents for stuff after your dad already told you no, or if your dad told you no, so then you went to your mom, you're deceitful. You're manipulative. I don't think God would respond to that at all. If Mary could do that, I don't think she would. And if she could, I know God wouldn't be fooled by that. God would go, okay, since you asked... But is that even a true statement that Jesus can't refuse Mary? Is that biblical? Now, I know the story in the scriptures where that teaching comes from, and that comes from the story of Cana. Jesus' first miracle is when he turned water into wine at a wedding celebration that he went to. and They had run out of wine, and Mary came and asked him, to, can you help them out? And he said, it's not time for me to start my ministry. And she said, but would you please? And okay, I'll do that. Essentially, she made a prayer request to Jesus that he chose to answer. That's what he did. But that doesn't mean that every time she ever wanted anything, God always gave her what she wanted, even if it was against his plan for her life or what his kingdom purposes were. And I'll show you that in Matthew chapter 12. If you've got Matthew, you've got your Bible, go to Matthew chapter 12. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 46 to 48, it says, As Jesus was speaking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside. So Jesus is speaking to a crowd of people in a building. His mother and brothers were not in that teaching service, but they came to that teaching service to look for Jesus. Now, did Jesus know they were outside, yes or no? I mean, if he's God, did he know they were going to be showing up today, yes or no? Absolutely. So he knew that they were coming, right? So Mary and his brothers, that, that'd be his half-brothers, they have the same mom, different dad, uh, half-brothers stood outside asking to speak to Jesus. So now we know what they wanted. So they showed up, they asked Jesus, Mary, the mother of Jesus, shows up and asks Jesus to come out and talk to her. If Mary, if Jesus cannot refuse Mary's request, then what does he have to do? Stop teaching and do what? go outside to Mary. But here's what happens. Someone, verse 47, told Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside and they want to speak to you. If Jesus can't refuse Mary, then he needs to shut down the sermon and go out. She, she just gave him a request. He's got to do it. But here's what he does instead. Verse 48. And Jesus, Jesus asked, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Hey, your mother and brother are outside. You know, you know who my mother and my brothers are? And he just keeps right on teaching. He takes his mom and his brother's request and he turns it into a teachable moment and he keeps right on going with his sermon and he doesn't go outside to her. He doesn't stop. Verse 49, then he pointed to his disciples and he said, look, these are my mother and my brothers. Anyone who does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother and he just keeps right on teaching. So it's not even biblical. It's manipulative. And according to the scriptures, it's not true. There's only one mediator between us and God. It's not the blessed Mother Mary. It's not the Apostle Peter. 
And I'm not speaking blasphemy. I might be speaking against what you might have been taught, but I want to show you what the scripture says about the mediator between us and God. If you've got your Bible, go to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Now listen, anytime we open up the Bible, you've got a choice. Do I accept what it says or do I accept something else? And that really is your choice to make. And we're going to love you here at Grace Church no matter what. You could walk away from God, we would still love you. All right? That's your call. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 through 5. I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Why? Because it matters. Pray. Talk to God. We talked in our first week of this series that from Scripture that there are things that God wants to do in your life that He is withholding simply because you have not asked. You said you have not because you never asked. You never even brought it to God. You said, I got this, I got this. And God said, fine, you got it. Let's see how that goes for you, kid. Right? So he says, pray, man. Do it. Pray. Pray for everybody. Everybody you care about, pray for them. Ask God to help them. Intercede on their behalf. And give thanks for them. Verse 2. Pray this way for kings or in our context, presidents. And all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. Verse 3, this is good and it pleases God our Savior who wants everyone, first of all, to be saved, to be reconciled back to Him, to be rescued from the consequences of their sin, which is separation from Him for all of eternity. God wants everyone, first of all, to be saved, and second of all, to understand the truth. What's the truth? Verse 5, there's only one God and there is only one mediator who can reconcile God and mankind. There's only one in between, between you and God. There's only one according to the Bible. It's not your priest. It's not your pastor. And it's not my grandmama. And it's not any other saint who's ever lived in history. And it's not Jesus' mom. The one mediator between God and man is, what does it say? The man Christ Jesus. Jesus is the only mediator. So that's the first thing. You don't need to pray to anybody else to pray to God on your behalf, not according to the scriptures. In fact, to the Jewish followers of Jesus, this would have been blasphemy. The idea... To marry herself as a Jewish girl who knew the law of God, the idea that after she had died, people would pray to her would have been blasphemy to her. It is a violation of the second commandment in the Ten Commandments. I want to show you what the Ten Commandments say. The second, <laughs> all ten of them. Get ready. Get comfortable. It's going to be a long church service. Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. You must not have any other gods but me. No one else comes above me in your life. No one else. That's the first commandment. Number two, you must not make for yourself an idol. Well, what if it's not actually an idol? All right. Or any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the ocean. You must not bow down to them. You cannot worship them. You can't pray to them. You can't sing to them. You cannot make any images and pray to those things. There's me. I'm God. I don't want you praying to nobody else. Don't make statues of them and pray to them. Don't take pictures of them and pray to them. So we meet in a warehouse. I've had a lot of people here at Grace ask, why don't we have religious icons? Because I know what you do with religious icons. You bow to them. Don't we? We bow to these things. Scripture clearly teaches don't make anything to bow down to. Don't make any statues of people to say prayers in front of. But most of us were raised in environments. See, this is the part that could be offensive and I... I'm not trying to be a jerk. I just If you're going to pray, pray as God asks you to. 
So we don't have crucifixes. I mean, I've been to Catholic funerals. Every time you walk up, what do you do? You have to come in front of that statue, and you do what? You bow to a piece of wood on a wall. And God said, don't do that. That's not even a picture of Jesus. Nobody knows what he looks like. He wasn't a white dude. I just shocked all the white people in here. <laughs> the black people have been saying that forever. And the white people are like, whoa. You mean he wasn't a French European? He's a Palestinian first century Jew? Yep. Homeboy had a built-in tan. <laughs> I'm just saying, that's some European dude. That's the photo on your wall. Listen, if these things are in your home to remind you that God's presence is with you always, that's fine. I have crosses. I have a cross necklace. I, I, have, I have a couple of crosses that I think are beautiful. Like when I, when I travel on a mission trip, I'll try to buy, a, if there's a cross at some gift shop or something made by a local artisan, I'll, I'll buy that. I like that. And I want to put it on the wall in my office, right? Like I, there's nothing wrong with these things unless these things are things that we pray to or bow to. You, you don't, the idea to Mary as a Jewish girl, that you would pray to her? Oh my word! Would have broken her heart. And she is in the presence of God. Like every other devoted follower of Jesus is in the presence of God who's left this body. What she knows about that, I have no idea. I don't know what my grandmama knows. I don't, I don't know what any dead person knows about what's actually happening down here. I don't know. I don't know. But what I do know is that the real Mary would never have wanted you to violate God's commandments, especially in her name. Neither would Peter, neither would Judas, Jude, neither. <laughs> if you're praying to Judas, you're on the wrong team. <laughs> you're on the wrong team. The crap, how'd I get in this building? I don't know. You better sneak out quietly before we tackle you. And we're intimidated to talk to God. We're fearful, and I get that. Hebrews chapter 9, the holiness of God and the unholiness of me. And I, I think that that's an appropriate sentiment. And in, before Jesus showed up, that is the way it was. So Jews weren't allowed in the presence of God. So in Jerusalem, in the temple, there was a curtained off area that only the priest could go into. It didn't matter how religious you were. If you were a follower of God and you were Jewish, you weren't allowed behind the curtain unless you were a priest. But then if you were a priest, there was another curtained area inside the curtained area. And inside that tiny curtain area was where the actual Ark of the Covenant is. Remember from like Indiana Jones, that one? And it has not a copy of the Ten Commandments. It had the actual Ten Commandments in them. That was the seat of God's presence. And the high priest was only allowed. He couldn't go in there anytime he wanted. Now they would offer sacrifices inside the curtained area. But once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies is what it was called. But when he did that, he had to go in with an offering of blood, which sounds completely insane to our modern ears, but it's life for life, blood for blood. And because God is a good judge, he can't let guilty people go free, but he will let somebody take the place of a guilty person. But can a guilty person take the place of another guilty person? If the judge was going to allow somebody to take the place of somebody who was guilty, he'd have to be somebody who was innocent. But who is innocent? Just one. That's why he was allowed to offer his life and his blood as a payment for our sins. And until that happened, mankind was intentionally separated from God. Because if you get a clean sock and a dirty sock and you rub them together, does a clean sock make the dirty sock clean? Yes or no? The dirty sock makes the clean sock dirty. So if God is holy, he can't be in the presence of unholy and still remain holy. Our choice to live in sin is what demanded God keep his distance until that dirty sock could be washed. 
That's what Hebrews chapter 9 talks about. Hebrews chapter 10 talks about that washing part. If you've got your Bible, go to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4 and 5 says this. For it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That is why when Christ came into the world, he said to God, and here he quotes from the Torah, You did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings, but you have given me a body to offer. Verse 11 and 12. Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which could never permanently take away his sins. Verse 12. But our high priest, Jesus, offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. Verse 14. For by that one offering, Jesus offering his body as a payment for the debt we owe God, life for life, blood for blood. For by that one offering, he, God, forever made perfect those who are being made holy. Hold up just a second. What that verse is saying is because of the sacrifice of Jesus, the innocent and the place of the guilty, God made us perfect knowing we were still in the process of becoming holy. I'm not perfect. I'm in the process of being made holy. Holiness happens when I have no one confessed sin in my heart. Holiness and me becoming holy is the process of God's Holy Spirit who lives in me as a follower of God through faith in His Son, Jesus. When I step in sin, when I step in poop, God's Holy Spirit goes, you feel that? No, not. do you smell that yet? Yes, smell it. Then wipe it off. You step in it again. God's Holy Spirit, you, you smell that? Yeah, wipe it off. I step in it again. You smell that? Yeah. Wipe it off. Hey, how about this? Let's not step in that again. Boom. But that don't mean there ain't other piles I still step in. You smell that? Yeah, wipe it off. You smell that? You see what I'm saying? How about we not step in that anymore? That is the process of me being made holy. But what that verse says is because of the sacrifice of Jesus, I'm already declared perfect. Am I? No. I'm in the process of becoming more and more like Jesus. But in my relationship with God, God already counts me as perfect as Jesus. There's other passages of Scripture that says essentially what God does is God takes Jesus' spotless robe that's never been tainted or polluted by sin, and when it comes to me and my relationship with God, Jesus goes, hold up, you're going to talk to God and my Father? Hold on, put on my robe. Before you go, put on my robe. In Christ, I am already declared something that I haven't earned. That's grace. Can you be any more perfect than perfect? Yes or no? So when I talk to God, I am as right with God because of Jesus as Mother Teresa, as Billy Graham. You can't be any more perfect than perfect. And neither one of them were as perfect as Jesus. I said, were. Billy Graham ain't dead yet. I don't think. You see what I'm saying? When I talk to God in Christ as a follower of Jesus, I am seen by God as faultless. Just like you are if you're in Christ. Just like Mother Teresa is if she's in Christ. Just like Billy Graham is if he's in Christ. Their prayers don't work more than mine. I'm wearing Jesus' robes. I'm not wearing theirs. They ain't wearing theirs when they talk to God. They're wearing the same one I'm wearing. Jesus's. That's why it says in verse 19, and so dear brothers and sisters, those of you who are wearing my jacket, you can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. Not because of the lifestyle of Sean, but because of Jesus. I don't need to be afraid of God. I can boldly walk into his presence so I can talk to God anytime I want. When I talk to God, dear God, God does, hold, hold up, Sean's talking. 
It's true. It's what the scriptures teach. I boldly enter the presence of God. He ain't against me. I'm his kid. I can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through that curtain into the curtain inside the curtain, the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean. And our bodies have been washed with pure. The guilt, the bad feelings for the mistakes of my past in the presence of God melt away. They're gone. When I talk to God, there's no barriers. I'm clean. I've been washed. My dirty sock ain't dirty when I'm talking to God. It ain't. It ain't in my relationship with God at all. You might see my sock as dirty. God sees it as clean. Not because I'm any better person than you are, but because Jesus is a way better person than you are. And I got his sock. Okay, this is weird talking about socks. I'm just saying. <laughs> Galatians chapter 4 says that we're adopted into God's family the moment we turn from sin and place our faith and trust in his death, burial, and resurrection is the only thing God accepts on our behalf on Judgment Day. I'm adopted into his family, and it says that his spirit moves into my heart and moves me to call out to him, Abba, Father. Not Abba like the band in Europe, right? But it's the same word, Abba, Father. That word Abba is in English, Daddy. Now, I, I have a father. I only, I only have one father, Ron Sears. But he ain't the only man that I call Dad. Billy Jane's dad, I now call Dad. We've been married 25 years. I can do that, right? If I started calling him Dad my first year, that would have been weird, if I'd have called him dad before we were married, I think he would have punched me in the face, rightfully so. But I'll never call him daddy. It ain't like that. <laughs> I only have one daddy. That's Ron Sears. Are you with me? That's what God says. I want you to call me that. I don't want to be like your father-in-law. I don't want to be like your dad. I want to be daddy to you. I want to be personal. I want you to feel like, metaphorically speaking, when you're praying to me, come here, sit on my knee. What do you need? What's going on? Not that he doesn't know. I just want you to talk to me about it. Include me. Talk. Let me know. Share. Open up. What are you afraid of? I don't... I'm not this distant dude in the sky with a white beard who's got a fly swatter, a giant one, squashing you. Listen, your sins have already been squashed. Jesus took the squashing. You're wearing his jacket. You're my kid. I see you as perfect. What's up? Talk to me, kid. That's what it is. 1 John 5 through 13, 5, 13 to 15. We don't have time to read this either. It says, talk to me. And anything you ask that is in line with my will for your life, I promise you'll get. So that's why it's so important that Jesus told us, when you pray, make sure you pray for God's will to be done more than what your will is to be done. Why? Because if God is to submit to your will, then who's your life all about? Then now you've put you in front of me. Right? So you pray for my will to be done. That's why at the end of the last two videos that we sent on on Monday, I ended those tips on praying and fasting with. And make sure you end your prayer by telling God that what you want more than what you want is what God wants for your life. Because what Ryan wanted from me when he was four years old was to leave the training wheels on. He asked for me and he begged me over and over and over and over and over again not to take his training wheels off. And I did not give him what he asked for even though I knew it would make him bleed. I knew he would be hurt. I knew he would cry. I knew he would get angry. I knew he'd be hurt. I knew it would ruin his day. And I did not do what he asked me to do. Because I love him too much. I knew that as bad as his life felt right now, it would feel a whole lot worse if he was eight. Excuse me, if he's in eighth grade, still riding a bike with training wheels. <laughs> and I don't know what it is you're going through. And you're praying and you're mad that God won't take this sickness away. 
that God won't bring you your future spouse, that God won't give you your dream job, that God won't what? What are you ticked at him about? And you're saying, don't take the training wheels off. You're praying the wrong prayer. What you're not praying is for God's will to be done. If you trusted God, you wouldn't be afraid. I learned something this past week to a fiction novel I read on vacation. That what you fear losing most is what you trust more than God. Isn't that true? They had referenced in this story the disciples in the storm and they were afraid that they were going to drown and Jesus said, peace, be still. And the storm went away and then he said to the guys, oh, you have little faith. And then the novelist was talking about the lesson from that to the characters in the story. Because if the disciples, they trusted more in security than they trusted in God. Their assumption was that God was out of control, that he didn't know that they were in the storm that he didn't know how this was going to end. And they didn't trust God to end this storm well, so they started freaking out. And the truth is, if you really trusted God, if you honestly knew, if you really did believe that God knew what you were going through and still loved you, you wouldn't be freaking out when you found out about your sickness. Not like you did. You wouldn't have freaked out like you did when you lost your job. What are you afraid of losing? What are you afraid of? Listen, if you trust God, fear leaves. Either God knows what he's doing and can write the rest of this story better than you can, or he can't. It's one or the other. Either he knows what he's doing and he loves you, or he ain't God, period. What's the third option? In what area of your life are you not trusting him? So I'll leave you with this last verse, which is Philippians chapter 4, where it says this. So because of this, don't worry about anything. Scripture tells you that. How can I not worry? Because you trust God. You trust that God knows what the heck he's doing. That you're his kid and that he actually is on team you. And that this too will work out for his glory and your good. Or you don't trust him. But if you trust him, then don't worry. What do I need to do with this then? Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Talk to him about it. Go to the person who can actually put your heart back together. Go to the person who can actually help you be okay with where you're at right now in life. Go to him. He's the only one you should be talking to. The only one that you have to be talking to. You can talk to other people for counsel. The Bible says in the multitude of counselors, there's great wisdom. So I'm not saying you shouldn't talk to anybody else. I'm just saying, but he's the only one who can fix it. So instead of worrying about it, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and then thank Him for what He's already done. Now that's important because we tell God often what He needs to do. But we're not that grateful. Can you imagine if we talk to everybody else in our life the way we talk to God? Do this, do this, do this, do this. I'm done talking to you. Check you out next Sunday. And then next Sunday we check back in to tell Him all the stuff He's got to do for us. Say, all right, I'll see you next week. Well, I'm going to tell you all the other stuff you got to do for me. Right? So just tell them everything you want, but make sure it comes from a place of gratitude because then you'll pray different. When you recognize that God doesn't owe you anything, you pray different. You pray more in line with God's will for your life is what you pray. You'll pray whatever you want, but then you say, but God, I trust you. So if you say no, then I want to tell you ahead of time I'm changing my prayer to whatever that is. Because whatever you want from me is what I want from me more than what I just said. So you pray different. That's when Jesus goes, now you're talking God's language. Now you're praying right. That's what he says. So I don't know how you've been praying. I don't know who you've been praying to. But what I do know is that God loves you. What I do know is that on his part, he's already done everything necessary for you to be adopted as his kid. And if you feel disconnected from God, it ain't on his side, it's on yours. You just need to stop running. That's it. You need to humble yourself, ask for forgiveness. Place your faith and trust in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus as the only thing that can save you from the consequences of your sin and separation from God. Offer your life to him 
like he offered his life for you. Life for life, blood for blood. Jesus, I give you my life. Help me to follow you with the rest of it. And for those of you who've already, been come, already come to that place, how you been talking to him? What do you talk to him like? How often? Are you angry? Have you been treating him like he owes you? Let's just pray different. Let's pray better. God 100% hears every one of your prayers. And your prayers work just as much as anybody else's. So I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray right now if you would bow your head. God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for not keeping your distance from us. Thank you for showing up in human history to take on life and doing it right. Thank you for being sinless. Thank you for offering us immunity from sin. And thank you for taking on our guilt on yourself. Thank you, God, for seeing me through the lens of what Jesus has done, not through the things I've done. And I'm sorry for those things. Keep working on me. I, I know I'm a work in progress. I'm just, I know you won't give up, so I don't need to ask, but I'm letting you know I don't want you to give up. I, I want you to keep pointing out the things that I'm stepping in. I want to be more and more changed into the person that you always intended me to be, and I'm thankful that you already treat me like I already am that guy. For those people in this room who feel disconnected from you, God, because honestly, they've never confessed their sin, their need to be forgiven. They've never called on you to rescue them and forgive them. I pray that they'd be doing that now. And if that's your next step, take it. God, forgive me for all of my sin. Save me from it. Jesus, thank you for taking care of it for me. You rose from the dead with a new life, and I want that new life too. Clean my slate. Help me to follow you with the rest of my life. I'm yours. Make that your prayer. God, I'm all in. What needs to change about you? God, I've been looking at you wrong. I've been angry at you. I hardly ever talk to you, and I'm sorry. Help me to remember to make you my first response, not my last resort. And help me to remember that you tell me that I can call you Abba, Father. God, I pray that your will is being done in each one of our hearts. Let your will be done on earth, just like your will is done in heaven. And we ask this in your name and all say together, amen.